Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 5th, 2014. This is episode 1478 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. Time for your calls to the Think Line 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. One more time, 866-658-4465. If you call that number, you will not hear, hey, caller, this is Jack, you're on the air. Because this is not radio. This is a podcast. That means everything is pre-recorded. And that means there are literally thousands of hours at this point of previous content that you can go back through. If you're new to the show, on all kinds of things. We do the listener call shows on Friday, Friday, Friday. But, you know, we do feedback shows on Monday. We do individual topics and interviews the rest of the week. And most of our information is not really temporal. It is very in-depth how-to life apply information. It is uh, has been called a PhD on preparedness, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance, along with other things like permaculture and homesteading. And I am really, really proud of the fact that some people do call it that, because uh, that's what I have set out to make it. So if you're new to the show and you want to know something that you haven't heard yet, remember, there's this magical thing called a search box at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And if you plug a term in there, you're likely to find at least a few shows on just about anything in the world of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making the show available to you. New episodes every Monday through Friday, five days a week, except on the rare occasions where I actually take a vacation or go off and teach something remotely. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Um, Right now, at this very moment, my wife is ordering some stuff from there for me. Again, usually what I fall back on is their anti-inflammatory stuff and their pain, uh, their pain formula as well. Because my biggest chronic ongoing thing is just from all the work I do around here, having a sore back, a sore neck, and things like that. And uh, I just find that herbs work better for me. You might find they work better for you if you give them a try for things like that. I know it's definitely better for my body than things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which is what things like Motrin, and IB, you know, Motrin is, uh, and things like Tylenol and aspirin and all that other stuff. Uh, so check them out today. If you have anything that you want to do to improve your health, I always go to herbs first. And again, I just think that that makes sense. The people at Western Botanicals are real people that really care about you. If you pick the phone up and give them a call, they'll help you out. And they also have a really great program. It is what they call their discount membership program. And it works like this. You give them $50 bucks a year, and they give you 25% off every order you make for the rest of the year. But if you're a member of my support brigade, you get that for free, which means it pays for your MSB membership in full. More on MSB in a bit. Next up today, herbs of a different kind, harvest eating. The illustrious, the awesome Chef Keith Snow. I got two questions he's answered for uh, listeners today, so you get a good, uh, get to hear quite a good bit from him today as well. He's an awesome guy. I use his herbs in my cooking weekly. There, I, I guarantee you there's no more than two days a week to go by that I'm not reaching into a can of harvest eating herbs for something. Uh, and it might be a day that we go out or a day that I cook something that I just want to make completely different or something and, and go off the reservation. But 
almost always I am using one of his seasonings in my cooking. Give them a try and you'll see why. They really are great. And you can also learn at Harvest Eating all about how to cook from a, a, a local and seasonal standpoint, how to make cooking a life skill and see great videos and listen to a great podcast. And he has a great membership program and he's a great friend to the TSP audience in the TSP community and personal friend of mine. The awesome Chef Keith Snow. Check him out today at HarvestEating.com. Uh, next up today, let us look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1478. And uh, we have one entry from Alex Shrug today, and it is, No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Did you know it was a surprise? It was. But it starts in 1478. The Tribunal of the Holy Office of the Inquisition is established this year in Spain. At this time, the modern-day Spain does not exist, but the monarchies of Castile and Aragon have joined in the secret marriage of Queen Isabel I and King Ferdinand II. It is not clear how secret the marriage is, since they had to get the permission from the Pope first. The Spanish Inquisition is created after Queen Isabella receives three reports of crypto-Jews who have pretended to convert to Christianity but continue to practice Judaism in secret. One of the reports comes from Thomas de Tocomenda, who will be the, become the famous inquisitor. While it is clear that the Pope Sixtus IV doesn't like the idea of a special inquisition, Queen Isabella threatens to remove military support for the Pope, so he finally allows it. By 1492, the Jews will be expelled from Spain. My take by Alex Shrug. I'm going to ignore the running joke of Monty Python's Flying Circus and ask a serious question. Were there really any secret Jews amongst the Christians in the 15th century? The answer is yes. The 15th century began forced conversions of Jews, and while many of these conversions were sincere, a substantial number were not. When one's life is on the line, some folks are willing to swear to anything. In secret, these Jews would light candles on Friday night with shades down. Such crypto-Jews exist in modern day, especially in Texas. They are not Jews in the literal sense, but they retain some Jewish practices and marry amongst themselves. I've met one couple in Austin who were crypto-Jews that converted to Judaism. They are fine folks and not at all unusual in Texas. Well, that's something I didn't know. I didn't know there was a such thing in modern day as what you would call a crypto-Jew. It doesn't sound like the same thing at all, though, does it? Like back in the day, it was like I was trying to keep my faith, and I didn't want to die, or didn't want to be kicked out, so I pretended to believe in what they said I had to believe in, and I continued to believe my own way and practice my own traditions in the sanctity of my own home. Once again, the state gets involved, and the state ruins everything, and the state persecutes one group of people for the benefit of another group of people. And you know, you can you can look at the history of persecution of the Jewish people, but almost every group of people out there, one time or another, has been in a position where they were the persecuted, and generally, it's always done with what the force of the state. That's my take by Jack Spierko. Um, Anyway, let us move on, and I do want to remind you guys to consider supporting my show by joining what I mentioned earlier, the Member Support Brigade, where you can get like the free discount premium membership uh, to Western Botanicals, which is worth 50 bucks, and my membership's 50 bucks a year, so that one benefit pays for itself. There's over 60 different companies that give you discounts. I've added five this fall alone. I've got a couple more things to add very, very soon uh, to the MSB for you as well. I'm always working to make it worth more than you pay for it. If you're buying stuff in the self-sufficiency, self-reliance world, anything from gardens to guns to food storage and anything in between, it, it will do that for you. Real discounts. Imagine if all those discounts from AAA were actually discounts. 
Like when you went to the hotel and you said, I wanted a room, and they said, here's how much it is, and you said, I got AAA, and they actually did, they didn't say, well, I already gave you a better price. They actually said, oh, here's another 10% off. That's what the MSB is like, but instead of for hotels, it's for everything from guns to gardens and everything self-sufficient. I'm talking plants, trees, seeds, you name it. We got it at real discounts from real companies that want to help you live that self-sufficient life. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. And if you are a military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, or a first responder like EMT, paramedics, or firefighters, either active duty or prior service, you qualify for a discount, email me with service discount in the subject line and tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get you that discount. You really need to do that before, not after you join. Because if you do it after you join, it's a pain in the butt, and pretty much you got to wait until your renewal to get the discount. It's just something that's not easy to do with PayPal and my system and, and all that other stuff. So you guys are supposed to be procedural in the first responder, law enforcement, military world. Well, that's the procedure. Email me before, not after you join. With that... Let us get into uh, the main topic of today's show, which is your calls, but I'm going to cheat a little bit on the first one. Um, I am going to do something that would normally be done on a Monday. It's a, you know something that's going around by email right now. I, I can't wait to tell you about this because, well, it's so, it's so true to what I've been telling you, and I, I want you to actually have the... Weekend to think about this if you're still a believer that you're going to get change at the national level through the system and specifically through voting Republicans in or Democrats in or Democrats out or Republicans in. One of the things I've been telling you, and I've, I've, I've gotten shit to no end from you guys on it saying I'm wrong and no, that won't happen, is that the, the, the GOP, the Republicans, will sell out its, their supporters on the immigration issue. I want to read this article to you called Top GOP Leader Promises Total Amnesty in 2015. And then I want to come back and I want to explain something really important that's become evident on Facebook today when I posted this and said this is what was going to happen. Anyway, let's start out with this. House Speaker John Boehner's top committee chairman says he wants an immigration bill that would allow a million of foreign migrants to stay and work jobs sought by Americans. I'm going to use, this is a quote, quote, I'm going to use my assets and resources in the new year to work with Congress to have a well-understood agreement about what the law should be and how we as communities and farm communities and tech communities create circumstances where we can have people be in this country and work where not one person is, quote, thrown out or deported. Representative Pete Sessions, the chairman of the powerful House Rules Committee, told a group of Democrats, Demo Demo Democratic legislators. The committee has the power to kill or boost members' bills because it decides how each bill will be considered in floor votes. Sessions' promise of de facto amnesty to Democrats was welcomed by Chicago Representative Louis Gortiz, who frequently describes unauthorized migrants. It's not illegal immigrants. It's unauthorized migrants. As members of his community, my heart was filled with a lot of joy when they said that people who are working here don't present a danger, basically should be set aside. Those that aren't, those aren't the people we should be going after, said Gutierrez, four hours and 16 minutes into the hearing. The December hearing, December 3rd hearing took place the evening before Boehner announced he would not even try to defund Obama's November 21st amnesty. <laughs> you can read the rest if you want to. Look, this is what I've been trying to tell you. This decision has already been made. The way in which it gets delivered to you, the marketing with which it is sold to you, is the only thing up for debate. 
And, and when you guys were talking about how important this issue was and you got to put the Republicans back in power, and now you have except for the White House, here you have the, the, the very people that you thought were going to do something for you here selling you out. Now, the more important thing. This is where people need to learn to use their brains and critical thinking. So I post this on Facebook, and I get a whole bunch of, of yahoos posting, why does it matter? Borders are imaginary anyway. And, you know, you, you sound like you think that, 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 that solving this problem is a bad thing. Well, I never, I never said anything about whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing. But people interpret just the very fact that you point something out to mean that you must have taken the side that you're actually telling them how wrong they were. It's funny. Let me, let me read to you what I actually posted. All of you who think the GOP won't totally sell you out on immigration are suffering from a mass delusion. You have chosen one side of the dichotomy and believe them when they tell you that they are on your side of every divisive issue. There is only one side, the side of the corporate elite, the side of the oligarchy, the side of those who have purchased your Congress with the party dues system. There is only one plan here, and mark my words, make your calls, tell your friends to vote R, post your memes, but in the end, the GOP will 100% sell you out. End quote. Jack Spirico on the Survival Podcast. Yes, I'm quoting myself. Here's Roy and a link to the article I just read part of to you. And there, you know, like the first comment, Uh, borders are imaginary, so who really gives a shit? And that's from Robert Jack Meyer. That's not the point. That's not the point. Farley Gord, you talk like immigration reform in a country made up of immigrants is a bad thing. I take it you didn't hear Obama's speech on his immigration reform. If the GOP wants total amnesty, that's something Obama wouldn't even sign into law. Talk about being delusional. Okay? Of course Obama would sign that into law. He didn't do it with his his executive order because he can't do that with the amount of power the president has at this time and with as much you know remnant of our constitution is left behind he went as far as he could but what did i tell you it was it was cover fire so your republicans could sell you out here's what i think is actually going to happen though it won't happen in 2015 In 2015, the Republicans will propose numerous forms of legislation for immigration reform, and they will actually tell you that it's contingent upon certain border security things to stop the bleeding, which will be played out really beautifully by the talking heads like Hannity and Limbaugh, etc. And, and, the, and the, yeah, well, you know, so they'll give you a year and a half to come to terms with the fact this amnesty thing is going to happen. But to, to do it, we're going to have to make sure we, we, we stop this influx, right? Which is what everybody's always said they wanted to do. And then, they, but they won't be able to get it done because Obama won't agree to it giving them further cover fire, and when a Republican president comes in, then he'll do the amnesty deal with the Republicans, but they'll never actually secure the border. And they're never going to secure the border with Mexico ever, 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 never. You got it? They're never going to do it. They'll talk about it. They'll tell you why it should be done. They'll make even a good case for it, but they're never going to do it. And this will be nothing more than a repeat of what Reagan did in the 80s. And it will not solve the problem. It will not fix the problem. It will take care of a wave of the problem that will begin the new cycle of the next problem. They need this problem. They want this problem. This is a problem that makes you hate each other. 
This is how they control you. You do not get this yet. They need these issues so that you will pay attention to them and think that it really matters and give them your time and your energy and your attention and sell out your freedom to them a little bit more every year. Without these divisive issues, they couldn't do it. We can solve all these problems if we just get government out of the roles that it doesn't belong in. So if we just had government stop giving people all this welfare, all these food stamps, all these other programs, and we let people privately insure themselves however they wanted to or not at all, guess what? Nobody would really give a damn. You wouldn't really care that somebody came from here from Mexico to work. They, they, they make like you do, but you know better. You know you don't really care. Well, it's jobs Americans want. No, it's not. No, it's not. And many times it's jobs Americans want, but they're not qualified for it. In the tech sector, we did a lot of recruiting. We brought in people from overseas through approved visa programs because there was no one here that could do the job, that had the skill set that was available, that could be deployed to the contracting opportunity to do the technical development that needed to be done. did not exist. Don't tell me that, oh, there's Americans ready to do those jobs. These people just, no, we pay these people a lot of money in those high-end jobs. And you know what? If you say Americans want a job picking oranges or picking lettuce, I'll tell you what. Go out to the fields and get the job. They'll hire you. They'll let you work. Right? Don't See, it's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. It's all talking points. And it's all about one thing. It's about controlling you. They'll never secure the border. They'll never secure the border. They'll never secure the border. What they'll do is they'll go down there and they'll harass you more when you go across the border and come back in. That's what they'll do. They'll look for more and more ways to extort you and trample your freedoms when you cross the border. They'll put up more patrols 90 miles north of the border, harassing people, pulling them over at checkpoints and things like that, and they'll never secure the border. So the best thing you can do is stop expecting it. Stop thinking calling your congressman is going to change that and start focusing on your own life. And with that, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. Hey, Jack, this is Joe in Kansas, Joe Snell and Zello. I have a question for you about permaculture and observation. Uh, here on my property in Kansas, I'm noticing that uh, now that all the leaves have fallen off the trees, on the north side of all of my trees, there's like a half circle well, the grass is still green and seems healthier. It doesn't make sense that it would be frost protection. Is it because that the sun wasn't baking that so much and the soil's healthier there? I guess I was just looking for your thoughts on how to interpret that. Thank you so much for the show and everything you do, and have a good day. Well, it's a great question, but you actually had the answer that you threw away. It is frost protection. It's not frost protection in the way that we normally think about it. We normally think of frost protection as that we actually keep an area warmer, Okay. But you have to understand how cold air falls, okay, and how you end up with thermal blankets that suspend cold air in, in tree canopies. So honestly, if you, you go into a forest uh, in the cold, you'll, you'll often find that it's warmer in the forest than outside of the forest and not just from wind. Because there's actually a buffering of as the cold air falls, the trees actually hold up some of the cold air. And what you're seeing is on the backside of these trees where they haven't lost all their leaves yet, a little bitty similar effect is your, your frost is hitting the ground. You're actually keeping the frost off the ground. It's like a frost shadow is, is a way to think about it. 
And we see it here all the time because we have a lot of what are called live oaks in Texas. And live oaks do lose their leaves for about 37 seconds in March, not in the winter. So they hold their leaves all through the winter. And you can go around my property, especially in another couple weeks as we start to get into the wet weather and more and more green, more of our, our, our winter grasses start to grow. And the places that I've, I've thrown cover crop seeds and stuff, you'll always see the most green and the most aggressive growth under the tree canopies. Now, in a lot of ways, you start thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't make sense because you would expect where the solar radiation is greatest and the more sun exposure you get, the more warmth that the ground would have to residually hold itself and be able to keep certain plants alive. Well, the thing is, where is the sun in the sky right now? It's not overhead. It's low in the southern sky, so it's, it's coming in under the tree all day long, warming the ground. And as that ground warms up, you have a warm ground, and you have a warm pocket of air, and as the temperature begins to drop and the cold air begins to descend, the tree that has the leaf left around it is creating a cascading effect where some of the cold air, not all of it, but some of it is literally spilling off of that tree like it's an umbrella and landing around the sides. And you're seeing li literally an umbra of the effect of that where those where those green plants are. The other thing you might have going on a little bit that's a little contributing factor to this is since that is the north side of the tree and since that was probably a more shaded environment for much of the year, the natural vegetation growing there may be a little bit more cold-hardy in of itself. So you might have a little bit more cold-hardy vegetation there, either just predisposed uh, of the same species or a few different species in there that handle the cold better. But that's what you're seeing. You're seeing like a, a frost umbra. And we can actually grow plants in heavy evergreen forest canopy that has maybe a 60% uh, shade factor in certain little pockets where we can get enough sun in to actually grow them that are marginal for our zones and actually bring them up a zone. So make a zone 6 into a zone 7 because of that protection from frost pocketing. And it's not just the cold, it's how much moisture lands on there and how much frost there is. If you think about this, if you set up a simple greenhouse, just a basic simple greenhouse, you put plants in there, and the end of the day, those plants grow better, look better, live longer, and don't die as often as plants outside of the greenhouse. We say, well, the greenhouse is, is warm. Well, it's warm in the daytime when the sun's on it. At night, unless you have insulation or supplemental heat or something else going on, the temperature inside the greenhouse and the temperature outside the greenhouse rapidly equalize. So if it's 25 degrees in the greenhouse, it's 25 degrees outside the greenhouse. The, you know Your greenhouse fabrics, etc., unless you're using insulated panels or something like that, they dump their heat almost instantly as soon as it gets dark. Fast. And temperature, but yet that plant does better. Well, one of the reasons is the warmer temperature during the day. So it just has a warmer temperature during the day. That also warms up the dirt, whether it's in the ground or in the pot, so the ground has some residual and the roots are less likely to freeze. But the big thing is it blocks wind and it prevents the dew from settling on the leaves so when the frost comes it's just cold air, it's not ice, little ice crystals all over the plant.
So trees can do the same thing. So that's what you're seeing. That's a really great question. It's a really great observation. Now the key is where can you use it to your advantage? Think about this. If you were to put up really good quality shade cloth over an area, you could create the same effect. And if you did it right with the right solar aspect, it wouldn't block hardly any sunlight during the winter months with the lower angled sun. But yet it would create the umbra effect and provide better protection to the vegetation growing underneath it. Something to think about, and that is from a natural systems observation. Let's take another one. Jack, I have a friend that is getting into the brewery business, and he's producing about 1,100 pounds of spent grain twice a week. I would like to feed it to my animals, but I don't know what the nutritional value is. How much can I feed them and how often? Is there any drawback to feeding it to livestock? Or can I spread it directly on my garden? What is the nutritional or impact of putting it directly on the garden? Or do I just compost it like I would traditionally using brown matter with the grain uh, because it is very hot and it has a lot of liquid in it? Or do you have any other ideas? Your thoughts would be appreciated as a long-time listener. I look forward to your response. Thank you. Okay, it's a great thing as a, as a supplemental feed for livestock. It's an awesome byproduct. There's some things that happen when you distill or, or you, you do brewing with grain through the mash extraction process. So the grain itself is gone by the time you actually start the brewing process or the distillation process. It's only done what's called mashed. It's an extraction And the primary purpose of the extraction is to convert the starches to sugars and then extract the sugars. So the sugars can be fermented because that's what, how you make ethanol. That's how you make alcohol. So you end up with a starchy grain like a barley. You put it through a, a starch conversion process that converts the starch to a sugar with heat. And then you flush it with hot water, which extracts all that new sugar. And you're left with what they call spent grain. Okay, and that's the waste product, if you want to call it that, or the byproduct of the process. Now, what you've done is taken a grain, and corn, barley, wheat, they varies a little, but you're usually looking at a protein content of like 9 to 11%, somewhere in that range. Sometimes a little lower, rarely a little higher with some grades. Because you've extracted the sugar, most of it is gone. The sugar is the carbohydrate. So the percentage of what's left is actually higher protein, sometimes as high as 25 to 30% protein. Well, woohoo, boy, that's awesome, right? We can, well, hold on. The bulk is still there, though, and what is the bulk primarily? The bulk is primarily fiber. Fiber is insoluble and non-digestible in many animals. Now, your ruminants can do a little bit better job of breaking this down. But when we look at something like poultry, this is not a good thing to give to young broilers during their growth. The reason is even though the protein percentage is higher, the volume the birds will consume is lower. Why? It's full of fiber, right? If I chop up a bunch of steak and feed it to you, you eat a certain amount. If I chop up that steak and then I mix it with something like wheat bran, 
you're not going to eat less of it just because of it sucks. You're going to eat less of it because it fills you up faster, right? So that's the that's the concern with it. So it's really good for like adult chickens layers. It's really good for like when you're you got mature broilers and you're finishing them. It, it's a great additional component. It works with pigs. It works with cows. There's different rules for each one. What I've done because I don't know what you mean by my animals is I found the very best article I could on giving you as much information as possible on all common livestock, pigs, cows, poultry, rabbits, you name it, with all of the concerns and how much you can do and uh, cited results and things like that. And it's on a website that is called, um, what is it called? Feed Feedopedia.com, Animal Feed Resources and Infor uh, Information Systems. Uh, this is the best information I could find as far as being broad. And then you can go down from there wherever you want to. Um, but I do want to talk about a couple of things mentioned in this article that I've already experienced for myself. So one of the things you find when you get brewer's grain is it's like you get a bunch at a time. And the problem is you really don't want to take more than you can feed your animals within a couple days. And the reason is it's wet, like you said. Now, since it's wet... It is really susceptible to going sour first, which pigs would like, and then becoming infected with bacteria and fungus, which can be dangerous for your animals. So you have to feed it relatively quick before it starts to, to, to mold up and, and fungus up and, and all these other things. Because it's wet, that's an issue. It is extremely wet. It holds a lot, a lot of water. Yeah, might You say it's hot, but that's irrelevant, because it's not going to be hot for long. Okay, I mean, you, you take it and, 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 and spread it out, and it cools quickly. So it, it's not going to be hot for very long. Um, in some places, it's actually processed where they take it and they, they, they squeeze it out, and then they dry it, and then it's a lot more storable. Uh, there, there's people that do silage with it as well. But for the small homesteader, it's an adjunct. I, when it's, when it's available, and I have some folks that occasionally bring me some, will feed it to my birds at about a 10 to 20% ratio to their main feed. And that's about it. And I'll go through it as quickly as I can, and, and, and that's that. As far as composting, it would compost like anything else that's primarily a carbon. So even though there's protein there, it's mostly a carbon. As a mulch, it would work well. You could just spread it out. It's a carbon mulch. It would be a lot like wood chips or shredded peanut shells or something else would be. Except that there's a lot of sugar there. There's a, there's a lot of residual sugar. If you take spent brewer's grain and you squeeze it and you feel it on your hands, it's sticking. If you taste it, it's sweet. So it will actually be a good feedstock for microbes in your soil. But that can be overdone too. So it depends on how much you're going to use. So I wouldn't be looking to take all 1,100 pounds a day. Uh, it's probably more than you can use. And you understand when you say 1,100 pounds, when you factor in the fiber and the moisture weight, both of those take drastically away from the food value. So review this article, because I don't know what species of animals you have. It's a good asset for people to, to know about and to check with local craft breweries and things like that. Some are really flexible. Some just basically have a great big place that they dump it and come take what you want as you want it, and after a certain amount of time, they got to get rid of it. Some have where you bring your own container, and they fill it for you. And they're going to give priority, though, to the bigger producers that can take more because they got to get rid of it. 
Uh, but some of you, you, you can set like a little 10-gallon barrel there, and they'll just fill your barrel, and you come get it once a week and bring them a new barrel. And you can do that every week over and over and over again. And if you have a larger flock, you know, ducks, chickens, turkeys, everything eats it. Everything loves it. But if you were to do something like put your birds on a 50-50 ration, you'd probably have a lot of weight loss. And you'd probably have some real compromising to your laying. And if you try to do that with broilers, you'd probably kill them. You'd probably kill them. They're not going to eat enough. They're going to emaciate. They're going to be trying to grow too fast. You're probably going to kill them. So it's, it's, I would not use it on broilers until maybe their last week or two. But I would definitely, and I do definitely feed it to my, my laying birds and is, is a, is a supplemental ration. To me, it diversifies their diet and that's always good. All right. With that, let's go ahead and take a question now for the illustrious chef Keith Snow. And I actually have two. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go ahead straight through. I'm going to play the first question. I'm going to play Keith's answer. I'm going to play the second question and play Keith's answer. Then I'll come back and take more of your own questions. Hi, this is Andrew from New Hampshire. Grab a snack. This question is for Chef Snow. Hi, Keith. Can you riff on some recipes for organ meats? I am uh, making room in my freezer for beef from a neighbor, and I'm down to beef and pork offal. The meat is grass-fed, grass-finished, organic, pastured, raised with Joel salad and techniques, and I can see and hear the animals from my home. It doesn't get any better than this. I have mostly liver with a few kidneys, sweetbreads, and hearts. More offal will be included in my order, uh, which is upcoming in a couple weeks. My wife is not a fan of liquor. Uh, I did make an awesome labor nodal soupa, filled with plenty of gluten-free bread, used it in a panade and crumbs, and a heavy dose of nutmeg. Other than that, I've not been able to sneak liver past her pork. My own attempts at cooking awful have been awful. Also need to restock your spices. Which ones do you recommend to disguise awful? Thanks. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow here from the Expert Panel. Wanted to answer Andrew's question from New Hampshire. Now, that awful can be awful, man. I know what you're talking about, and that was a pretty funny question, dude. Um, organ meats are something that, let's just say, the American palate isn't quite, um, it's not quite there as opposed to Europeans and uh, other countries that eat a lot more of this type of stuff. For instance, um, there are some Russian folks down the street here. And um, it is not uncommon for them to make soup out of chicken legs and to eat all kinds of uh, offal. And for those of you that don't know, offal, O-F-F-A-L, offal, just kind of code word for innards or organ. Um, <clears throat> so these Russian people, they eat all kinds of things, and their young kids are very familiar with it, and they're not afraid of it. Now, when you um, get here in the United States, kids grow up with, you know, liver and onions, and usually it's, you know, just cooked to death. It can be terrible stuff. Now, um, my folks used to eat um, a lot of liver and kidneys and stuff like that and steak and kidney pies. That, that sort of thing was um, not common, but something I've been exposed to and certainly in the restaurant business and on trips to Europe and, and tasting trips and things like that. Uh, I've come across a lot of dishes using offal and not just from beef. Now, um, you've got some beef, and I know it's going to be difficult to pass some of it off on the rest of your family members, and that's definitely a conundrum, especially when you're trying to be super responsible, Andrew, and uh, use everything up because there's no sense in um, throwing this stuff out, and it can be used. Now, the first thing I want to do is suggest that you get familiar with uh, making pate. Now, beef liver pate, uh, there's 16,000 recipes for it, so I'm not going to go into a recipe here. Um, 
but this is something that you can make your own. Uh, I would suggest investing in a proper uh, terrine mold, and that's usually going to be from a French company like uh, Le Creuset. Uh, you can find them online, and they're kind of um, they're very specialized for this. A loaf pan can work, but a proper terrine mold is really the way to go. Um, usually, they're made out of a coated cast iron, enameled cast iron. So um, the way they transfer heat makes it the proper um, tool for the job. But a lot of people that don't like organ meats will enjoy uh, a pate, um, particularly when you spread it and you you know do the whole French thing: spread it on a baguette, get some um, little cheeses and cornichons, which are little sweet pickles and different mustards, things like that. And that's how you can. Um, introduce that type of food to people. Also, uh, organ meats, kidneys, liver, they can make very interesting stuffings to put inside of, you know, take a pounded chicken breast, for instance, and cook a mushroom duxelle, which is a little uh, mushroom combination, cooked down mushrooms. You could add liver in there, uh, herbs, and you can make a wonderful stuffing, and then you sear the whole thing or roast it, um, so you can you can also stuff pork with it. I mean, you can stuff just about anything uh, with a good, you know, awful stuffing like this. So that's another suggestion. But I would invest in some books. And I've done some research for you. And a book that I would recommend is called Odd Bits. And this is a, a good book um, that can help you. Odd Bits, How to Cook the Rest of the Animals by Jennifer McLagan. And uh, she knows her stuff. And this is a very good book to show you how to use up all those different parts. Uh, also, another book I would look at is uh, from Michael Ruhlman. I have the book. I don't know where it's at. It's called Charcuterie. And uh, when you're talking about these innards and offal, you're talking about charcuterie, force meat, um, sausages, salamis, all these type of things um, are under the art form called charcuterie. So definitely check into those two books. And, um, you know, as far as changing the palate of your wife and your kids, good luck there, man. Uh, I know when, whenever I do anything that has to do with uh, awful here at the house, it goes pretty awful, man. So there you have it. Um, I want to thank you guys for calling in the questions. Uh, getting a little lonely, so call in some more questions. And uh, thanks for supporting Jack and also supporting Harvest Eating. Check out my podcast at HarvestEating.com. Hey, Jack. This is Willie from Colorado. I have a question for either you or Chef Keith Snow about making bread at high altitude. Here's the details. I've been trying to make, you know, just a, a loaf of sandwich bread. And I actually live in the Colorado Rockies at about 9,000 feet. Now, I can make the nice loaf of bread, uh, but when the thing is done, it's so heavy, you could throw it at somebody and kill them. Um, it's, I'm trying to look for a recipe or some technique so it's more pliable, like you know the stuff you would buy at the store. Um, any advice that you guys may have would be greatly appreciated. Love what you do, and hope, I'm hoping to hear this on the air. Thanks, Spike. Hey, this is Chef Keith Snow again from the expert panel, and I wanted to address Willie's question uh, from high up in the Colorado mountains. Now, uh, Willie, not only do I um, know a little bit about baking, I also know quite a bit about the high mountains of Colorado, having uh, lived and worked up there. Um, I think I lived about, was it about uh, 
9,300 feet is where I lived. And the base of the ski resort that I worked at was around 9,800. And I also had restaurants that I managed that were over 11,000 feet. And uh, one of the things that I was in control of was a large, basically, you know, we could call it a commercial bakery where we baked lots and lots of things um, for use all over the resort, mainly in the banquet operation that we ran, which was about a $3 million a year banquet operation. Now, first thing I'll tell you is bread can be successfully made at high altitude. It is possible. Um, pastries and things that are more intricate get a lot tougher. Now, when I was um, high in Colorado, I ran a culinary externship with Johnson & Wales University, and I had some students um, come to work under me for a few months for their externship, and I had them from the uh, Charleston, was it Charleston? Yeah, the Charleston, South Carolina campus, the Rhode Island campus in Providence, and also Denver has a satellite campus of Johnson & Wales University. So I had students from all those um schools come to work with me, and one of them was a pastry student, and she had a very uh, wonderfully complete portfolio of her pastry arts, and uh, she was used to making those at basically sea level in Providence, and then she came up to 9,800 feet and had some challenges, and she did a little reading, but some of the things that she was doing, these cakes and fine pastries, um, very delicate and somewhat difficult when you start messing with the formula. Now, we all know baking is totally different from cooking. Um, cooking, you can add a little of this and a little of that. Baking, you're following formulas. So these are scientific formulas because you're dealing with reactions and uh, how one ingredient reacts to another. And when you're talking about bread, you're talking about leavening and structure and little changes can make a big difference in how things react at altitude uh, where you are, particularly this time of the year, is extremely dry. Now, uh, the humidity this morning here uh, in the southeast is probably around 80 to 90 percent. You're probably looking at upper teens, and that makes a huge difference. Now, some of the changes um, I would suggest you try, the first thing is you definitely can make bread. You're going to have to mess around with the formula. But like I said, I ran a uh, bakery, and I wasn't the baker. I had a professional baker in there that I managed. Um, but we made all kinds of bread, rolls, muffins, just about everything, and um, with great success. So it's definitely possible. So that's the first thing to understand. But oven temperature, you're going to want to increase your oven temperature. Just we'll shoot with about 20 degrees, and you need to mark this stuff down. Um, don't just do it and not write down what you did. I would suggest a 20% increase in your temperature. Baking time. Let's just say you normally bake your bread by, I don't know, an hour. That would be two 30-minute sessions. I would decrease by about six to seven minutes for every 30 minutes of baking time. So a little less time, higher temperature, less time in the oven. Now, your sugar, I would probably, uh, if you're using sugar to get your yeast going, I'd probably cut that down just a little bit. Now, your liquid would need to be increased, and this is um, where it throws people off, but you need to increase it one to two tablespoons at 3,000 feet. Increase by one and a half tablespoons for each additional 1,000 feet. You can also use extra eggs, and this was one of the challenges with creme brulee at 10,000 feet. It's already has a lot of eggs in it, and um, we were having to take so much sugar out of it to make it work that it just was 
wound up being, you know, an egg custard and not quite right. But um, the other thing is flour. You need to add additional tablespoons of flour. So at 3,500 feet, for example, you'd add one more tablespoon per recipe. For each additional 1,500 feet, you would add another tablespoon. So these are the things that you need to mess around with. And the reason is when you're up that high, it means things are going to be done sooner. Um, you have increased evaporation, and the extra liquid is going to help the bread from drying out. And, and this is just the way it's going to have to be at such an extreme altitude like that. So um, I'll just leave you with, it's totally possible, man. Don't freak out. And I'd love to see some of your um, bread creations when you're when you're done. If you don't want to post them publicly, um, you can just email them to me, Keith at HarvestEating.com, or you can uh, feel free to post them over on my Facebook page, Facebook.com slash HarvestEating. Lots and lots of photos of food that people cook. And this is definitely an interesting uh, conundrum that you have. I've heard it many, many times. Uh, I wish you the best of luck. And I want to thank everybody for supporting um, not only Harvest Eating, but also the good work that our buddy Jack is doing over at TSP. And thank you to all of you TSPers who have ordered the spices over at the Harvest Eating store um, over the Thanksgiving holiday. I very much appreciate that. And I've also left that 25% discount live for another couple of days if some of you have missed it. So with that, I hope everybody has a great weekend. It's been Chef Keith Snow, the expert panel. Take care. Hey, Jack, this is Trent from Utah. I have a question about survival energy and what would, and would like some input from you and from expert council member Stephen Harris. My question is, what are some cost-effective and efficient ways that I can keep my family warm during the winter if the power's out for, say, a week? This has been on my mind for a couple of months, and given the recent topics of energy and its importance to survival in a grid-down scenario, I finally made enough reminders to actually call in. Background, we have a sick home heated with forced air. The air is, is uh, heated with natural gas and circulated by fans run by electricity. Average winter temperatures are not too bad where I live. Uh, daily highs about 30 to 35 degrees Fahrenheit. Lows typically down about 15 or 20, sometimes a little bit colder. Uh, generally not too bad. You both mentioned how virtually inexhaustible the natural gas supply would be, uh, even for an extended period of time, just because of the pressures involved. But the primary problem is running the furnace, which requires electricity both to start the burn process, it has an electric pilot, and to run the fans once uh, run the fans to force the air through the house once it's been heated. I've considered installing a cutover switch with a plug so I could run an extension cord from a generator, but I wonder how feasible that is, starting and then running a high-amp draw furnace motor off a gas-powered generator, uh, I have a large family in a smaller home, so there's not really much room for a wood stove. I'd love to build a rocket mass heater, but local codes and space limitations make that option problematic. I do have a few of the little small heaters that run off propane tanks, but I always worry about running them indoors. Uh, whatever kinds of uh, options and, and uh, things that you guys could come up with would be much appreciated. Thanks much, Jack. Take care. Okay, so actually running your your furnace, the electric side of your gas furnace, is not a huge requirement um, if you're looking at a generator in the range of 2,500 to 3,000 watts. It's probably more than a nuts. Now, this is dependent. There are new modern uh, furnace systems that are very low draw on that side of things, on you know, just to keep the air circulating. And there's some older ones that are... 
pretty intense. But even those, you know, a, a, a two to three k generator is going to handle even the surge just fine. Some of the newer ones you could you could literally run on a, an 800 watt inverter. There's some really really low draw new stuff. So it depends on what you have there. So I'm going to talk more about the generator side of things and how you can do some really cool things, but. Just the concept of can you run your furnace with a generator and still run other things with your generator? Yeah, no problem. Now you got to store enough gas. You got to maintain your generator. You got to change the oil. You got to run it in cycles. You, I mean, all the other things that go with generators have to go into consideration here. But definitely, you can do that. So it is an option. And again, I'm going to come back with something really cool you could consider doing in just a bit. On that note. But before we do that, let's just talk about the simple, the two simplest forms of space heating that I know of, and the two best ways to do this to make sure you can just stay warm. First of all, let's understand: you're not going to heat your whole house, right, with the supplemental heating. You're going to heat rooms, okay, and areas, and the people, not all the air in the whole house, okay. It makes sense to set up a room or two that are more of your comfort rooms to spend most of your time in during a, a time like this. Everybody huddles up together. Not everybody in their own room and 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 what have you. You you kind of huddle up. I do this in the in the summer down here. It's the exact same thing when we have to run on generator power and we don't have enough generator power to run the central air conditioner. So we take a room or two with window units and we control those rooms. Think the same way. The portable propane heaters that are designed to work inside are outstanding. They're very efficient, and the propane stores for dang near ever. My favorite one is the Mister Heater, the Big Buddy. Mister Heater Big Buddy is a little. It's, even they call it a Big Buddy. It's it's kind of small. It's um, uh, it's. You know, something you can pick up with your hand and walk around with. I have one they sell for about 150 bucks, and they're specifically designed. You take two of those little one-pound uh, propane cans, and you screw them on. There's one on each side, and you push a button, and the heat comes on, and you, you set it to the temperature you want, and boy, it will warm up a room. It will go through those little cans pretty fast, though, especially when you're really cold and you're trying to keep a room nice and toasty warm. Uh, you know, you're looking at a couple pounds of propane there, one in each a pound in each can. So they make another little product that goes with this, and it's just a great product. It is a hose that sells for about thirty-seven bucks that goes right on to the 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 twenty-gallon propane tanks that you get for a, a sto uh, a grill. You know, and you know, five of those cans and one of those heaters and a hose, and you're going to be able to keep a room warm. Now, you want to keep two rooms warm? You need two of them. You need double the fuel and etc. But definitely, you go a week, and you probably are going to find you don't have to run it all the time. You run it at the coldest time of the day, etc. Heat the person, wear layers, etc. Uh, don't try to keep the house a toasty 74 degrees all day long uh, with the heater. Just do what you need when you need it. The other option that I think is the simplest and I think relatively safe, if you're not a knucklehead, option are kerosene space heaters. You can store kerosene for dang near ever, five years easy, five years easy on your kerosene. 
And the modern ones are, are set up so they don't smoke, they don't soot. If they get tipped over, they shut off. If you don't touch them when they're raising, raising hot, you don't burn yourself. So it does require a little bit of intelligence to use. There is a little bit of a ventilation requirement. So you want to crack a window by where they're being used. Yes, that lets some of the heat out, but you also don't die. Okay, But those work well, and I'd say both are the best. To have a couple of kerosene heaters and one of the Mr. Heaters uh, would, would do you well. And they're very, very simple to use. And I know there's a lot of hype over kerosene heaters kill people. Ah. And I, again, I think that there is no patch for stupidity, is an old programmer's fate, uh, statement. You know, we can do all these security upgrades that we want, but if somebody throws a USB stick in the, in the parking lot with some malicious code on it, and one of our employees picks it up, walks in, and plugs in their computer just to see what's on it, which they've done tests and people did it in government, by the way, um, then, you know, we can't fix that. There's no, there's no patch for stupid. Well, you can kill yourself with a lot of things. You can kill yourself with a butter knife and an electrical outlet. I'm suggesting that you be smart enough not to do that. So you can do some harm with a kerosene heater, but used properly as instructed with modern heaters, it's relatively safe. And uh, as safe as anything else that we do on a daily basis, as long as we're not stupid about it. So I, I, that's what I really recommend. And, you know, if you put up 20 gallons of kerosene in five-gallon cans out in your, your shed or whatever, and you got a couple uh, propane tanks and a, and a Mr. Heater, uh, you, you're probably going to be able to keep warm enough, at least in certain areas of the house. And, again, you know, go into certain areas. And, again, don't tape your windows sealed shut or something stupid and suffocate yourself, but... You know, the Mr. Heater portable propane heater is designed to use indoors. It's what it's for. Uh, and it also has a shut-off switch. It also shuts off. If the, if the CO2 gets too high, it shuts off. If the, uh, if the heater's knocked over, it shuts itself off. It's, it's a very, very safe tool. I like it better than the kerosene heaters, but the kerosene heaters have a lot more oomph. You get a lot of heat conversion. Here's the big thing. You notice I didn't say get some electric heaters and a generator. It's a very inefficient way to heat. Uh, another thing you might consider, you know, and I think this is probably the best, is a good wood stove. A good wood stove is it was good enough for the pioneers. I mean, that's that's the best. But if you want simple supplemental, kerosene and propane are, are your two simple supplementals. Now, I have found a video for you. It is awesome sauce. It is from a guy called Rick's DIY, and I really like this guy. It's how to wire your gas furnace to a generator, right? So this is actually something Stephen Harris covered, but this is how to take your natural gas coming into your house, power your generator with it. But then your generator could power the electric side of your furnace. It's about 40 minutes long. It goes through every single step. The guy gives major safety disclaimers and says, if you do this, you're on your own. But I like this guy. I like his video instruction. I'll put a link in the show notes to you for you today. But you think about that. So you have this natural gas supply that's extremely reliable. When power doesn't work, when phone lines are down, when the water's off, often still the natural gas runs. So if you had the natural gas running from your furnace line, powering your furnace, and then 
are powering your generator, but then your generator running the electrical side of you can see what I'm saying. It's a self-contained system at that point. And that way you don't necessarily have to step up to one of these great big giant ones that's designed to run on that natural gas line like an always-on backup generator. That would be great, but they're expensive, right? They're really expensive. So this would be a way that you could use a smaller generator and the natural gas. Anyway, just thought you might want that added in. But again, if you just want to use a generator to power your, the electric side of your gas furnace, um, unless you got some really archaic thing, it's not that big of a demand on something like a good generator. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Matt from Vermont. Quick question this week. As you know, the ruble uh, is being pummeled right now. Should we be buying rubles? I know you don't give financial advice, so you don't need to necessarily say yes or no to that. But really, I was hoping this question might be an opportunity for you to talk about uh, buying currencies, distressed currencies, things like that. Some I haven't heard you talk about before, and uh, particularly on the heels of your awesome money show uh, just yesterday. I'd love to hear it. Thanks, Jack. Take care. Okay, this is one I, I, you know, I don't really want to go into, but I'm going to do it anyway because, yeah, I don't give financial advice. I also do not play the foreign currency market except for one brief excursion into bonds, and they were Australian bonds, which actually worked out really well, by the way. Uh, I really try to keep my my money in either commodities or dollars, not other people's versions of dollars, right? Um It's not that I think we're number one, we're number one. By the way, we're now the number two economy in the world, and the Chinese economy is now officially larger than the United States economy. Something I told you for a long time would happen. People told me I was nuts. Just, just an aside there. But the Russian thing, let's look at how many different ways you can get your ass burned in this, playing the up or the downside, because the answer is don't know where it's going next, don't know where it's going to end up. I do have some thoughts on if you want to buy foreign currencies, one way you can do that Um, and on some levels minimize your risk a little bit. But um, so remember, we just did a show about money, right? And then we talked about what does it do when your currency is weak? It improves your effectiveness as an export market, and it weakens your effectiveness as an import market. So when you look at China, for instance, China is a major export market. They keep their currency weak against the dollar. On purpose, on purpose, they want it weak against the dollar, because there's two types of currency strength. There's there's a global currency strength. How strong is your currency in the world market? And there's what's called a, a local currency strength or a relative currency strength. What is what is the strength of your currency within its own nation? So if you look at the pound, the the British pound is very strong against the dollar. If you're a British citizen and you come to the United States, everything's on sale as far as you're concerned because the exchange rate is such that the, the pound is much more powerful than the dollar. But if you have a pound in your pocket in, in, in Britain, you have about the same buying strength inside your own country as you, as you would if you were an American with a dollar in your pocket here. And the same thing with the euro. The euro is, is, is a bit strong against the dollar, not as strong as the pound is, but yet... In Europe, a euro is like a dollar in Europe, right? You don't you don't really see much of a difference. So when Russia's currency weakens, it weakens 
and it weakens, and it weakens, and there's a point at which it starts to actually lose power within its own economy. That's what they call inflation. But in general, the Russian currency has held up fairly well internally for now. So in Russia, a, a ruble buys about what it bought last month so far. It's starting to ebb a little bit because it's getting to be a little bit brutal out there with speculators. As, and Russia basically opened up the door to this by allowing more free trade in their money. Right now, if you go to Everbank, which is where I would recommend you look at investing in foreign currencies uh, through foreign currency CDs and other options, you will see that they will tell you that the ruble is a non-deliverable currency. What does this mean? That means that you're not getting it. They're not going to you can buy a CD denominated in it and you can hold it and when that's over you've earned both interest and appreciation or loss based on the currency strength versus the dollar when you end your term of that CD, but they can't you, you can't say I want my I want my Russian money and they'll give it to you in paper form. It's not deliverable. It's not as freely exchanged as most currencies are on the Forex or foreign currency exchange. Uh, it is probably the closest thing to the, the, the Chinese currency that's out there and the way that it's controlled by its government and the way its trading is restricted. Okay, so how does this all play out? So we were talking recently about how Russia is affected by oil prices. And that basically the Russian economy runs on $70 and up oil. You know, with oil sitting at like 68, 69 bucks recently, this is a problem for the Russians. But what effect does it have if the Russians' currency is weak and it's selling oil to other currencies which are stronger against it now? Effectively, as though that those, those, those dollars or euros, and it would be mostly euros, Russia sells a lot to Europe, especially natural gas, not just oil then you're actually going to end up with more ruple value domestically once that currency is converted back to your own home currency. What else does this do? When your currency is really, really weak, it also devalues your debt. So as long as the, the Russian bank can just print more money, it can pay its debt off on the cheap right now. So while Putin is out threatening uh, uh, revenge, basically, on the, the speculators driving down his currency, it's not like there's nothing to gain from it. It's not like it's a good thing. But played properly, it could be a good thing. You could play it for a while. You could shake out the speculators. And then you could intentionally further back your own currency and prop it up a little bit more and bring it back after you've divested yourselves of debt and burn your creditors. You could ride out the short-term drop in oil prices if you believe it's going to be short-term and effectively be selling for more rubles right? by allowing your currency to remain weak and making it attractive in some ways for people to buy from you. But what is the big problem? Russia depends on a lot of imports, too. There's a lot of things they do for themselves. There's a lot of things they buy from abroad. When your currency weakens, the cost of importation goes up. It costs more to buy stuff from outside your economy. Now, overall, would I buy them right now? Well, not probably, no. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. You know what wealthy Russians are buying right now? Dollars. They've seen this before when the Soviet Union collapsed. 
I read one article where some wealthy Russians are buying two, $200,000 in, in American cash bills a month or so and shoving them into safe deposit boxes in case this thing pans out really bad for them. Even short midterm, they want an insulator, right? So the, the world right now is putting their money into dollars. So it may not be the time for us to put our dollars into their money if, if they're not doing it. Now, there is some diversification that can be had. And one of the products I like if I was going to do it is the Everbank foreign currencies. Now, there are a lot of different options. You can buy a CD in Singapore dollars, uh, Polish Zolci, right? Russian ruble, Hungarian money. You can buy yen. You can buy peso. You can buy New Zealand dollars individually. And um, if you want to do that, it's one place you can do it, but it's a pretty big pill to swallow with the minimum investment, okay? Um, they also have what they call world currency CDs that are in baskets, right? And this allows you to diversify, but some of these are you know $20,000 to open an account in them. Now, here is why I'm going over to Everbank, though. Everbank used to have a BRICS basket. Brazil, Russia, India, China. You could buy one of these, these basket currencies. And if you look there now, they don't have it anymore. They've gotten rid of it. It's gone. Now, these are people that make a living by selling these things to you, and they don't want to sell it to you right now. The other thing that you'll see, if we look at... All the baskets, and the ones they have right now are, they have one called a commodity, one called a global power shift, one called new world energy, one called petrol, one called ultra resource, one called world energy, one called balanced debt, euro tracks, investor opportunity, European opportunity, geographic, Pacific advantage, pan-Asian, and Viking. Do you know what not a single one of their baskets has in it right now? Not a single one. Has the Russian currency. If you want to buy the Russian currency, you got to buy a single CD denominated in it. That makes me wonder how much confidence this this comp this company that makes a living with this being one of their niche products has in in, in and I'll tell you more about what they think about it because the president has an article out about it that I'll read to you in a second. The other thing, these guys used to have something that I thought was ultra cool if you wanted to invest. In, uh, in foreign currencies. And I can't remember what it was, what it was called. Um, and I can't find it now, but I had found it on their website. It used to be really prominent and now it's kind of hidden. And when you do find it, it says there's none currently available. They used to have a system that worked like this. You could buy a, a, a currency basket and the, the, the brick basket was one of them. It was FDI insured for the base investment. So if you put $10,000 in, Uh, and the currencies allowed the, the value of the CD to go up or you made money on your, your interest rate or whatever, at the end of the term, you got the profit, all of it. If it went below the $10,000 you put in, you were guaranteed to get at least your $10,000 back. They used to make a really big deal about the fact that they had that available, and now none of them are. What does that tell you these people think about the risk associated with foreign currencies right now? Basically, by removing that option, they're bullish on the dollar. Is what it tells you. Uh, so that's that's another concern there. And then when it comes to the ruble, and 
let's let's talk about um, what the president of this bank that makes money by selling you these things has to say. The newest member of our roster of currencies offered by Everbank World Markets, the Russian ruble, is probably more like the Chinese renminbi than any other currency. The Russian Central Bank has historically kept the ruble inside a trading band as a managed currency. However, in mid-August 2014, the trading band was dropped allowing the ruble to move about the markets more freely while trading was dropped. I don't see the ruble beginning to act like it has been set free and unleash mountains of pent-up demand. Russia is currently facing broad economic sanctions by the European Union and the United States due to unrest on their border with the Ukraine. I find this to all be a distraction away from what's important, which is that Russia has joined China in calling for an end to the American dominance and removal of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. In mid-July 2014, the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, announced they were creating a new development bank and a contingency pool to fund projects in troubled emergency market economies. This new development bank will act, act as the BRICS-owned IMF World Bank. It is relatively easy to dismiss the BRICS as an institution, given that the five members may have differences that will be difficult to bridge. But I feel that over time, Russia's association with the BRICS will be good for the country and its currency. The BRICS countries will be financing infrastructure in emerging countries, not just their own, as well as investing in high-technology projects that could enhance the global growth of many small countries. Even with the economic sanctions that have been placed on Russia, Russia, the Russian economy will most likely avoid contraction in 2014 and look to grow in 2015, according to the Economist, Economist magazine. The ruble is a volatile currency, and therefore I believe that it should only be bought with funds that are allocated to your speculative investments in your portfolio. The ruble is also the second worst performing currency in 2014 to date, but there appears to be a bright light at the, ahead for the ruble. I hope that bright light isn't a train coming for the currency. Bullish long-term, very bearish short-term, and uh, this is uh, written by the president of World or Ever Bank. And I believe this got to be pretty switched on in the foreign currency market. He's carved out a niche for himself there that no one else really has. The gentleman is named Chuck Butler, and again, he's the president of Ever Bank that offers these unique investments. Um I think that there's a lot of uh, good things ahead for Russia, but they may not be good things in the next year or two. I, this is not a time, I think, to be going out there. And I don't exactly know how these CDs work, how they actually get your money leveraged into there, but my best guess is it would be through bonds, that they're buying short-term bonds and then converting those bonds into a, a banking vehicle more comfortable for the American investor in the form of a CD. The reason being is they're doing $10,000 and $20,000 minimum investments, which are large enough to buy bond blocks with your investor pool. And the Russian CD at Everbank is currently paying about 11%. And right now, uh, the, the Russian bond rates are in that 11% range. So the fact that those two numbers line up tells you something. The other thing you're seeing, if if you have a country paying 11% on their bonds, they're really trying to attract people to loan the money. You don't pay 11% interest unless you need people to loan you money. right? So they're trying to attract outside capital. That's another warning sign for the short to midterm on the Russian economy. So... A long, convoluted answer that says, I wouldn't do it, but it's not my financial advice to you. Could you win? Sure. 
But what if the ruble bounced back in 2015 by half of its losses? Well, you'd get about 15% on your money. Just to me, it's a lot of risk for a potential 15% return, which is probably about as good as you would do. Anyway, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Richard in Idaho. I just uh, wanted to see what your comments were on the president's recent address regarding how to, you know, quote-unquote, fix Ferguson. Uh, his One of the main ideas was to have a federal program to help uh, local law enforcement uh, by body cameras, which is one of the things that you have talked about and uh, a lot of people who are worried about uh, militarization of police, uh, you know, as far as, you know, something that is not a fix-all, but uh, could be very helpful in regards to uh, uh, lowering lowering police brutality charges and things like that, as they've been showing, to, in a lot of areas, reduce it from, you know, 60 to 80% or more uh, charges against the police and complaints. Uh, one of the things the president also talked about was that uh, we needed, uh, I don't know the exact words, but the, the basics were to uh, uh, look at the militarization of police. I find this interesting since they're still continuing to sell military equipment to uh, local law enforcement and federal law enforcement agencies are still continuing to train local law enforcement as if they are, you know, a military force as far as in SWAT, SWAT tactics and things like that. Um, as a libertarian myself, I don't like government programs, but, you know, being a pragmatic individual and someone uh, who can also, you know, find the good in things, um, and even if I don't agree with it, uh, you know, in principle, as far as for federal expenditures of funds, uh, it, as far as as far as things the government's going to spend money on, uh, body cameras isn't the worst thing that I've heard, and I think uh, in principle it's, it's a good idea as far as at least for pushing this, you know, for police to demilitarize and, and wear body cameras. I was wondering what your thoughts are. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Bye. I'm going to be pretty brief on this because I'm actually investigating uh, the potential to do an entire show on what's really going on here. Um, I believe Ferguson, on some levels, wasn't staged, but it was encouraged, and it was caused. You have to look at maybe the reason that it was caused. Remember, let's do the body cameras first. Do I think body cameras are a good idea? In principle, yes. In practice, maybe. It, it depends. Um, I can't tell you how many officers I've talked to who are decent, good guys who have caught people in minor crimes that could really screw up their lives, but they're pretty minor crimes with no victim, and they just go, dude, Give me that. Let me throw this away for you. Get the hell out of here. Don't let me see you again. You put body cameras on officers and all that goes away. That's the downside of body cameras. I would actually prefer that citizens start initiating citizen cameras. I get to video it, and I get to decide whether or not I want to release the video or not. Uh, it just seems like a better solution. So that's, that's all I'll say there. Now, why is the president suggesting body cameras in this? This is not about racism. This is not about Ferguson. This is typical political bullshit 101. Politician. The people are pissed about blank. What can we spend money on that will make them less pissed? Advisor. Well, we could spend it on A. A does B and C, and we can tell the people that it will help with D, and they'll be okay with us stealing their money to pay for it if we do that politician, okay, let's do that. That's why. Because it's the thing they can spend, because that's all government can do. The only thing government can do is pass regulations and laws and spend money. 
There's nothing else they can do. So spending money always looks like they're accomplishing something. So in this case, we should spend it on body cameras and rebuilding a city that destroyed itself. The taxpayer should fit the bill for what the rioters did. I think we should get every person that was involved in those riots and fine them for every penny they're worth, and then you know, then we can look at we'll pay the rest of the bill maybe. Okay? I mean, seriously, they should be paying money for the rest of their lives for destroying the town. Because it didn't protest anything. But you got to look at why this is going on. This is the problem. It's not about race. It's not a, it, I know the riot is about race. I know the hoopla is about race. The problem is not about race. Police kill white people too. Okay? Police are abusive to white people too. Police are abusive to black people, and they're abusive to white people, and they're abusive to Hispanics, and they're abusive to Native Americans. And if you can think of a race, there is a group of people who have been abused by police in that race. There's, there's more white people killed last year by police officers than black people. There's a little interesting fact. Okay, now, we have to ask ourselves... And, and I'm, I'm a little bit out there with this because I don't have the concrete material to back. That's why I, I want to go kind of brief here and, and bring back a whole show on what I think is really going on here. Why Ferguson? I already told you in an earlier episode this week, I think it's because the cop was right. So it creates a divide. You see, if the cop was wrong in Ferguson, it doesn't create a good enough divide. You don't have people entrenched into their camps, especially along racial lines. And I guarantee you, I'm not going to insult anybody by telling you that every black person believes Michael Brown was innocent and every white person believes that the cop did the right thing. But I'm going to tell you that if you polled a thousand people, that it will, it will land very, very much on racial lines if you go with black and white. Very much on, on which side they'll come down on. Now, this is, this is preposterous because we all have the same information available to us. So there's clearly a perception bias that's hitting which side people come down on. And I would say there's more white people that believe Michael Brown was some poor, innocent individual than there are black people, by percentages, that would side with the officer who shot him. Right. Part of this is because the media keeps putting out a picture of this guy where he looks like freaking Arnold from different strokes. This from several years ago instead of the huge guy, thug, that attacked this officer. And he did, for everything we can see, including witnesses, all of whom, by the way, were African American witnesses, say this is what happened. Okay. So this is where I'm going with this though. At the same time this is going on, we got a guy named Eric Garner, another large black man, that was choked to death on video in New York City. And even your, 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 your supposed libertarian, it's actually a right-wing pundit, Glenn Beck, comes out and says when they don't indict these officers on any charges whatsoever, that it's sickening that, that these people get away with this. Like Bex even said, like these cops seem like they murdered this guy. They should stand charges. But the average person out there knows far less about what happened 
or have heard far less about what happened, because most Americans don't know shit about what really happened in Ferguson. They believe whatever side of the, 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 the tagline they heard that fits their narrative. But most Americans have heard far less about Eric Garner than Michael Brown. I think that the cop that choked Eric Garner to death should be in prison for the rest of his life. I have no problem saying that based on the information I have on what went on there. This was unnecessary. This was a man harassed for supposedly selling loose cigarettes. This is not worth a man's life. This man did not attack anybody. This man did not resist arrest. He asked the cop not to put his hands on him. He said, don't hurt me. Don't touch me. Please leave me alone. That was his response, and it was met with full-on force, and this guy was choked to death. Now, why, why would your media and your government enable an eruption for one and really kind of play down the other one? Where in one, it looks like the guy that was attacked was really a guy that should have never been attacked, and it looks like the police were wrong, and the other one looks like the cop was trying to save his own life. Because the guy was dumb enough to charge a cop with a gun and try to punch a cop through the window of a car. Why would they choose that one? But what they will play up with Eric Garner is the fact, well, black lives matter. This guy was black. This was a white cop. Except the sergeant in charge of what was going on there was a black female, by the way. Did you know that? This is what I'm saying. The problem isn't about police abusing black people. The problem, America, is police abusing citizens of the United States of America and for whom they are supposed to protect and serve. That's the problem. And they don't want you to focus on the problem, so they're giving you something different to focus on. Oh, it's a black thing. That way the country will automatically divide. Because there are people, I am among them, that have nothing against black people in general, but we are sick of the black community's bullshit about it's all our fault, we did it to them, and they are persecuted at every level of society. They don't have a bullshit. You have a black president, you have black members of Congress, you have black members of the Senate, you have black mayors, you have black governors, right? You have black corporate CEOs, okay? This country has a lot of problems, But when it comes down to it, you can make of it what you want it to be for yourself still in this country. And you can be black, you can be green, you can be fuchsia, and you can still be a success if you want to be a success. And there has been so much blame assigned to people that never did any harm to anyone just because we're white with you have right white privilege. And I don't know that I had white privilege since my grandparents were freaking coal miners in the coal region of central Pennsylvania. That's a big pile of shit. And we're tired of hearing it. We're tired of being blamed for, for things like slavery when many of our families didn't get here until the 19 freaking early 1900s. It's not our fault. We didn't do it. So because of all that animosity and all that anger, when you hear something like this, you go, oh, they're at it again. And because the usual suspects like Sharpton are at it again, you associate the victim with the talking head. And with the usual repertoire. Why? So you won't focus on the actual problem. Your government's abusing you and they're using the people in power of law enforcement to execute their abuse on you. That is the real problem. Now, there are good cops out there. I have a great letter from a good, young, new rookie cop. I'm going to read to you on Monday. I think this guy is a young hero in the making. 
But if the if if law enforcement wants to stop this, you have to start policing yourself. Put protective serve back on your freaking cars, okay? And start acting like you mean it. And don't try to arrest the guy because he's selling some cigarettes to somebody on the street because there's a law in New York City that says that's illegal. You got better shit to do with your time. It's not worth the guy's life. This is a guy that was constantly harassed, constantly messed with, and had no real serious police record at all. Choked to death. Is it a tragedy that he's dead? Yes. Is it a tragedy that he's that, that, that he's a black guy that's dead? No more so than if he was a white man. It's a tragedy that he's a citizen who was killed by the people who were supposed to protect him. That is all. And if we want to solve this problem, the people of this country are going to, number one, have to start holding law enforcement more accountable, and two, get off the race train. I don't care that you killed a black man. I don't care that you killed a white girl. I care that you killed a citizen, period. And until we can start doing that, we deserve the shitty country that we're having handed to us. And it's because we're behaving like exactly what us, they want us to be. A bunch of stupid Muppets with the government's hand or our side's of the dichotomy's hand up our ass, telling us what to say, telling us how to act, and telling us to conform to one. Pick a side. It doesn't matter which side as long as you pick one. I'm done picking sides. My side is the side of what is right, regardless of who is on that side. Regardless of who says I should be on that side. Regardless of what color of skin anybody has. I don't care what your faith is. I don't care what your religion is. I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care what your sex is. I don't give a shit. I care if you're hurting people, that's wrong. And if you're defending people, that's right. And cops, you're supposed to defend people. Period. That's all I can say on this one for right now. Body cameras won't fix it. Money won't fix it. We gotta fix it. Law enforcement officers start have to have after that start acting like what they are. Citizens first. You're citizens. You're not you're not merchants of the state. You're not different. You should stop referring to us as civilians because we're no more a civilian than you are. You are not military. You're not supposed to act like military. You're not supposed to be federalized. Get your shit together. And the people in this country need to get their shit together too. And the next time somebody brings up race, tell them to shove it up their ass. You don't want to hear it. Let's talk about what happened, regardless of the color of who was involved. If somebody did something out of malice or hatred, I don't care if they hated you because they were you were black. I don't care if they hated you because you were a woman. I don't care if they hated you because you had money. I don't care if they hated you because they were poor. I care that they acted in hatred, period. The cause matters not. The result is what matters. Police the damn result and police your damn selves. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Dennis from lovely New Jersey. Um, I have a question about soil remediation. Um, we did soil sample testing in my backyard. And as pretty much anywhere in this urban area, there's a lot of lead, arsenic, and chromium. Um, thinking about doing, I uh, have been doing earth boxes and aquaponics, but I'm wondering about soil remediation. I heard a lot about um, using cabbage and sunflowers. I was wondering if you had some advice on the subject. Um, behind my house, there is a cliff that is owned by the city. I could dump bad soil back there to actually braise up the, uh, stop the erosion. So I, that's an option. I was thinking about um, mushrooms 
Any advice you could uh, give would be grateful. Thank you. Good. I got this one and two more, and they're all completely out of the political arena and back to things that we can do in our own backyard. In this case, uh, soil remediation. You can do things with uh, things like mustards and sunflowers and oyster mushroom to take a lot of these uh, things like arsenic and lead out of your soil. But it takes years to have a marked uh, effect, uh, seven to ten years to have a 25% reduction. That's good and that's bad. It's good... Because what that means is even the plants that are predisposed to take up as much of this stuff as possible only take up so much of it. It's bad because it's there in the soil. Here's the reality, though. Your plant doesn't want to drink chromium. It doesn't want to eat chromium, not in high levels. It doesn't want to eat arsenic, and it doesn't want to eat lead. It may have to drink it if the acidity is high enough, especially if you have acidified rain. But it's it, plants in general don't do a lot of taking up of lead. Because they don't need it. Plants take what they want. Now, when you grow them in nu nutritionally deficient soils and they're grabbing on anything they can get, they tend to accumulate more of whatever's there and they attempt to accumulate anything because they're not getting what they need. So the first thing we want is healthy soil. Before anything else, that's what we have to start thinking is healthy soil. Um, the other thing is that a lot of these contaminants, when you get them into a, a pH of 6 to 7 in that that you know, that neutral range to slightly acidic or six to seven and a half, six and a half, seven and a half, especially in that, that they don't take up much of this stuff at all. The more acidic, the more they're going to take up. And as they get into the point where they're taking up a lot of it, you're getting to, to such an acidic condition that you have bigger problems. You start taking up a lot of this all the time. And what it means is your soil pH is down around four and you got other problems like, You know, your soil's too acidic. You know, or three and a half. But then you get these acidic rain events that short-term alter the pH, and they can cause your plants to take a lot of this stuff up. So it's not like it's not a problem at all. It's not like you should just ignore it. Raised beds are probably the most economical way. Because if you're, you're building up a foot of your own soil mix that you're controlling, or more, then you're going to be mitigated right there. The plant's getting what it needs. It's only going to go so much deeper than that. Uh, with feeder roots and things like that. It's only going to take what it wants down there if it's getting most of what it needs above. The, the best solution would be large-scale, full-on sheet mulching and composting up to a foot or deeper. So actually building the entire property up by about a foot. That can get expensive. But that would be your ideal solution. And you can still do things with your remediators, right? Oyster mushroom sunflower, and greens, right? Especially like turnip greens, mustard greens, uh, canola, oilseed radish, all of these things with these deep tap roots and dynamic accumulation will do a lot to help remediate. So if, you're, if you grow that for a season or two and then get rid of it, take it away, burn it, whatever, get rid of it. And you gotta, if you burn it, the problem is you're putting it right back wherever you burned it, right? So part of the remediation issue is Well, if you remediate it and then you take whatever material you remediate, wherever it goes, the problem goes with it. So we really have to start repairing the ecosystems. We because there's here's the thing: there's lead everywhere. There's arsenic everywhere. These are elements in the planet's crust. They exist. There's there's so much 
of every element, good and bad, out there in our soils, that it's ridiculous to think you're ever going to get rid of it all. It doesn't mean it's not elevated in some areas. In a lot of places, it's elevated because of what we did, you know, and it's made it worse. Zinc, too. Zinc will burn, absolutely burn vegetation, burn land up in, in high enough uh, concentrations. I've seen places where it looks like there were fires, but it's looked like that for 20, 30, 40, 50 years due to uh, waste products from zinc smelters. So it's not like it's not a problem at all, but... In general, with the levels that are out there, if we build up and we build healthy and we increase the overall biodiversity of the system, plants tend to start taking what they want instead of what they're given. So that's the best that you can do is to, to remediate the property. Lots of compost, lots of mulch, build it up quickly and keep improving it and keep building it and keep bringing in good material. Keep increasing the biological activity. The, the lead will never completely go away. But what will happen is it'll become non-bioavailable. And if you think about, about it this way, when you, we look at a, a, a plant and we say that plant is growing in a condition where we can tell that it's deficient in a mineral okay, or an element, like let's say iron. The reality is there's probably enough iron in a tablespoon of the soil that that plant's growing in to provide all the iron that's necessary for every plant within 25 feet of that one plant. In one tablespoon, it's in there. The plant can't get at it because the soil's dead. The exudates aren't there. The, the fungal interrelationships aren't there. So it's, our soils are not as mineral deficient as we've been led to believe. Our soil conditions and our growing practices have made those things largely unavailable to the plants. So when you take a starving plant into a contaminated environment, it will make do with what it has and it will accumulate things like lead. And when we add to it the aggravation of high acidity, it will accumulate more. Because the lead becomes available to a large degree. If you actually want to remediate soil at a high level, the way you do it with plants is you apply what's called a chelating agent to the soil, which actually frees up and makes the bad thing bioavailable so that your mustards and your sunflowers, etc., can get more of it out of there. So even the ones that are predisposed to take it up, even in conditions where it's more likely that they will, we have to go in with this additional chemical, this, this chelator, and free it up. And if that's the case, that means that it's not that bioavailable to the plants that you're growing that you put into good, high-quality conditions. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Jaquindo Agazier. I love the podcast. Um wanted you to talk about um, homesteading for kind of um, for an urban environment, uh, particularly uh, somebody who maybe lives in the city or doesn't have a particularly lot amount of space, um, but 
Just wanted to leave that. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm actually going to suggest you go listen to episode 1130, all about urban homesteading. You can skip to about the 10, 11-minute mark when you do, and you can get right into the episode, since all the temporal stuff from 2013 is irrelevant at this point. We're almost in 2015. Um, but it's a pretty good episode, and it goes over some things like what makes an urban homestead. Is it about the size or the location or what? Unique challenges and concerns for urban homesteading. How much land you need to have a true homestead feel. What things you must avoid 100% if you're to have an enjoyable urban homestead. How animals can fit in the equation. I mean, pretty much everything that you might want to do from an urban homesteading standpoint, I cover in that show. And I've talked about small-scale land quite a bit before. And maybe it's time to do another whole show on this again. Because... What I want to kind of convey here to you, though, is like, chin up, be happy. Because urban and small-scale landscape stuff is actually easy. It's the easiest homesteading. It's the easiest permaculture. It's the easiest food production that you can do. And it's because since you're restricted in the size of the land, you're going to get very intensive on the whole thing. The whole thing becomes extremely productive. And because it's small-scale, the design is easy to come up with. You don't have a lot to think about. Hey, there's room for trees here, there's bushes here, there's edges here, there's there's this here, this is a microclimate here, here, and here, and you just do it. So investigate that, but understand that like some of the beauty of it is like, okay, so I have three acres. I can't I can't irrigate three acres. If I was on city water, I could afford it, and with my well, I can't produce enough water to irrigate three full acres. Right? But if I have a quarter acre, I can irrigate every square inch of that if I want to. A highly efficient irrigation. I can I can sheet mulch a quarter acre. I can sheet mulch a quarter acre a foot deep like we talked about with remediation if I really want to. I don't even have to spend a lot of money doing it. If I get a lawnmower or a leaf shredder and get really active right now, I can have six, eight, ten inches of shredded leaves down for next to nothing because everybody's going to bag them up for me and set them out. All I got to do is pick them up on the day before trash day or the evening before trash morning. Right? Just with leaves, I can do so much mulching. A little bit of compost, bunch of leaves some wood chips on top of it. I mean, you can just blow up urban spaces. So be encouraged with that. And again, check out episode 1130. For those that are unaware of some of the things that went on in 2013 with Silver Bullet, Silver Shield, Rob Gray, American, there's some history in, in 1130 at the beginning that at this point it would be best if I removed it, but I just don't do that. I would just skip over it. It's now released to the eons of history at this point. There's there's nothing more to be said or done about it. Um, but anyway, uh, with that, let me get one more for you. I think one or two more, and we will wrap up for the day. Hey, Jack. It's Brian from Delaware. My question is, I'm growing uh, lettuce indoors this year in front of my south-facing windows. Uh, it's doing very well. But I've got a bunch of little tiny black bugs and summer green. They're about the size of the top of like a, like a pinhead. Super, super tiny. Not sure what they are or where they came from. Uh, they've been indoors since they've come up. Uh, the soil did come from my outdoor garden boxes, which is a mixture of rabbit manure, chicken manure, you know, rotten straw, you know, just all the, all the good stuff that is around the homestead. Uh, so I don't know if maybe the bugs came in with the soil or if they came on the plants and um, what I should do with them. I've just been kind of picking them off by They're starting to multiply. So just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Thanks, Jeff. 
aphids. You got aphids, and they almost certainly were uh, harbored in the soil that you used and brought into your home. If I am going to um, do indoor gardening, I'm either going to use a good potting soil, well-drained potting soil mix, or I'm going to make my own, and I'm going to make it mostly from peat moss, uh, compost, and sharp sand. Is what I, or maybe some vermiculite or perlite as well. I'm not going to dig dirt up out of the ground and bring it in the house because of what you're experiencing. It's not a disaster. I'll tell you, how to, it's really easy to fix. I'll tell you how to fix it. Uh, fortunately, that's what you have. You don't have something far more difficult to fix. What you end up doing is you bring in a pest and you do not have control. So the aphid would not be that active right now in your climate, and if it was, it would be it would be ebbing toward the frost side of things right now, right? Uh, and when it is active in the spring, the late fall, the summer, there's these things that love aphids. They're they're called ladybugs, and they come and they eat them, and green lacewings eat them, and lots of things eat them. So there are predators that eat them. Well, you've brought them in to an artificially warm environment. Uh, their little eggs have hatched, and they've come out to start doing their aphid business with no predators. So now they're in a nice little protected house, yours, uh, being aphids like they're supposed to be, and nothing's probably there to eat them. So now you have to deal with them. Good news, they're weaklings. And since you are not going to have like this ongoing infestation uh, like you might outside, if you kill them, you might have to kill them once or twice, and then they'll all be gone. And they're easy to kill with a gentle solution of soap and water. Which, when you harvest your lettuce, you can just rinse off. So, if you put a couple drops of, like a cut, like a drop or two of, uh, especially a, a biodegradable safe dish soap, like you should be using anyway, into a spray bottle of water, and uh, give it a little bit of a shake. Don't make it too foamy, but get it well incorporated. Let it foam back down, and then put your little spray nozzle on the top of it. And put it on mist and mist them with it, they will die. And then they'll be gone. And if they come back and you spray them again, they will die again, and then they'll be gone. And they probably are only going to come back. There's probably only so many of them in that dirt. Uh, but you want to knock them back right away because they're probably doing what aphids do and all other little insects do, reproducing in a perfect little happy cocoon of spatial uh, warmth that you've created for them by putting them in your house. So, little insecticidal soap, and you can make up your own. You don't have to buy it, but you can buy if you want to buy like an organic insecticide product, soap-based product, that'll work too. Uh, you might find them sitting on clearance on the shelves in Walmart right now. Most of it's probably gone, but again, just a couple drops of a liquid soap and water, boom, it'll knock them down. It'll knock them down quick. If you have snails and things like that in the soil, you can also use that in a drench. It will often make a bunch of your bad guys come out so you can see them and kill them further uh, by, by simply watering with a little bit of soap in your water. If you don't do too much, it won't hurt the plants. It's not going to hurt you. Again, um, if, you ha if you use hand, you know, like homemade lye-based soaps, uh, you could take a little, little nick off of your, uh, of your bar of soap with a knife, you know, more than you would think of for liquid soap because it's not, it's not as strong. But maybe, a, a, um, I don't know... Uh, an eighth a teaspoon or so, and uh, mix it up in water and dissolve it into the water. It'll do the same thing. And then you're, you're pretty much a natural product right there. Um, but that's what I would do to knock them down. But you got aphids. 
not a catastrophe, but it's a direct result of taking soil from the ground and bringing it into the house. Again, it could be worse. You could have something far more gnarly in there if you, if you weren't lucky the way that you are. All right, with that, I am wrapped up today. I had one little tweak out there about the whole law enforcement thing. I am going to dig deeper into this. I think that we are seeing right now a purposeful divide in this. And it's not just the Al Sharptons of the world that are doing it. I believe your own government's behind it. I believe they, they, are, they are trying to keep our eye off of what they're doing. And they want us as a divided people is easy to control and easy to lead. They are militar, militarizing our police forces. We have, we have police, small town police forces with helicopters and armored vehicles, and this is not necessary. This is ridiculous. Millions and millions of dollars being poured into this. And it, it, at times, I hate to say it, at times this is how I feel. I think they're trying to cause national riots. I think they want it so that they can justify greater oppression, so that the people will beg for safety. And when you ask a government for safety, what they give you is tyranny. And when it's executed properly, the people cheer as the chains of tyranny are placed upon their shoulders and their necks and upon the shoulders and the necks of their children and their grandchildren. In fact, they even say we're doing it for them. In our hearts, though, we know there'll be far less freedom and far less liberty by the time those children we think we're protecting are our age. If we're going to change that, we have to change ourselves. We're not going to change it by who we vote for. The government that you, you have, that you vote for, is bought and paid for. It doesn't matter who wins. There is one plan. And that plan is not in your best interest. It's in the best interest of those with power and those with money. If the people are ever to have the power, the people have to be responsible first. Those who are not responsible never hold on to power. We have become an irresponsible people. We have shifted the blame from ourselves to others. When the politicians have given us a race to blame, we've taken the bait and we've done it. When the politicians have given us an income bracket to blame, we've taken the bait. And we've accepted the opportunity to blame somebody other than ourselves. When they've blamed a part of the country, whether it's north or south or west or east, we've taken the bait and we've been willing to assign the blame to others. Instead of taking the responsibility for ourselves. Until such time as this country can rise above the games being played by those in power and start to see each other as what we are, fellow citizens of this nation and fellow human beings occupying this planet until we can stop dividing ourselves by immigrant versus natural born citizen until we can stop dividing ourselves by black versus white, man versus woman, rich versus poor until we can actually start seeing each other as humans they will continue to control us so those of you who have risen past that and are willing to be that and wish everybody else could understand you can't change others But you can continue to change yourself. You can continue to build liberty in your own life. And you can continue to choose to voluntarily associate with people that think the way that you do. And you can continue to point out the stupidity and ignorance around you when people bring it to you and think you want to hear it. You can continue to ask people challenging questions rather than just tell them they're wrong. You can ask them to justify their hatred with fact. You can ask them to justify their bias with fact. You can present fact to them and ask them to explain it away. And you can't expect them to change immediately, but if you just give them a little piece here and a little piece there and you don't push and you walk away, When they say, well, this was clearly an act of racism, and you say, well, the officer that was actually in charge of the entire group of officers was a black woman. 
and then say, I think that it's an action of, I don't know, law enforcement abusing its power. doesn't matter what color the guy is. doesn't matter what color the officer is. It simply matters that there was an abuse of power, an abuse of force, and that people did not follow their own procedures, and they used uh, something that had been banned in their department forever. Why does it matter that they killed a black man? Why doesn't it just matter they killed a human being? Why doesn't it just matter they killed a citizen of New York? Why isn't that what's really important? I know you don't have an answer for me right now. Think about it. Get back to me when you do and walk away. That's how you actually start to open minds. And that's what needs to happen to about 300 million people. It's a big number. But it's what it's going to take to change this. As long as you see your fellow citizen as the enemy, while the people with all the money and all the power want you to do just that, you're playing their game. And you know what? When you play another man's game... You always lose. Write your own rules. Create your own game. Play your own game. Play to win. Play to take care of yourself. Play to take care of your family. And realize it's much more important than a game. It's life. No matter what you believe about religion, when it comes to this incarnation, this life, you get one. There's only so many marbles in your jar. There's only so many days that will ever be represented by a dash that will be between two years that represents your life. Spend it well, my friends. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Revolution. 